Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz, and today, Lindsay Pools and I will be joined yet again by our lovely friend Clara of the Denmark Street Deep Dive podcast, concluding our reread of Troubled Blood with chapters 72 and 73. As always, please be aware that our discussion of Troubled Blood in this episode will reference the ending of the book, as well as previous books in the series. In addition, please be sure to stay tuned to the end, as we'll be announcing our future plans for the podcast. Without further ado, let's get into some thoughts Lindsay had after recording our last episode about our differing attitudes towards Janice and Creed as serial killers. I just wanted to bring something up that I've been thinking about while listening to the last episode. Not trying to call you out, Pools. Fine, come at me, bro. I'm ready. Oh. <laughs> I'm always ready for a drag down, like a knockdown drag out fight. No, so, no, no. Yeah. Hopefully okay. not that. We'll see. It depends on what you say, I guess. Uh-oh. God, are we about to go full like WWE up in here? I love it. We're going full chapter 40. Valentine's Day. All over yeah. again. Here we go. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, but when you were wondering last time whether Janice's head injury actually did affect her, you were wondering whether your own biases were at play because you were interested in those things for Janice, but not Creed. And I feel like we have to kind of talk about it a little bit because it's such a huge theme in the book. Even Strike points out that he did this when he feels upset with himself. Mm-hmm. I know I said last time that I was like, this makes me feel uncomfortable, but I couldn't quite articulate why. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of, you know, when you brought up things like female socialization in regards to Janice's obsession over marriage and the comparisons you made between what she says in chapter 71 to Strike's behavior. I think that's kind of why it makes me uncomfortable. It's not because of what you're saying. I'm not disagreeing about female socialization, Mm -hmm. but it almost for me applies a bit of understanding to Janice Mm -hmm. and especially in regards to the things about strikes behavior. I guess it borders on saying like that she has a point. So Janice herself obviously is batshit and she herself (laughs) I don't think really has any call to be complaining about men mistreating her when she's poisoning men to death. Obviously, she herself doesn't have a point. But I do think that the text itself as a piece of literary work, so not Janice as a person, but the way the text is weaving in her complaints, I just feel like some of Strike's exes could make the same complaints about him and that unlike Janice, they'd actually be justified in making those complaints, especially Nina. Now, obviously, for these women, the solution isn't poison, strike. So for me, it's like men exploiting women's emotional and physical labor and men using women for sex. It's one of the cornerstones of the patriarchy, right? It's foundational. It's been happening for millennia and it's still happening. Janice saying it is just an excuse to sort of have it be there in the text because it does exist and it does happen, even if Janice herself is not... I guess I'm just kind of divorcing these ideas from Janice in a way and just seeing that they're there. I guess that's the hard part for me Mm -hmm. because I can't do that. There's a million different ways we could talk about his past or Nina, but Janice, it applies a certain level of understanding to her that I'm just not Mm -hmm. willing to give her. I can see how you can divorce them, but that's where I have the problem. And I don't mind talking about the reasons why Janice is the way she is, because I Mm -hmm. think everyone knows I find that fascinating yeah but if we're not doing that for Creed as well I feel like that's just part of what the book is saying about our own biases yeah I think there are reasons why we especially women look at Creed and think he's more evil more terrifying but the reason why it does make me uncomfortable is because I don't ever want to 
give her a pass. And I know that's not where you're doing. Mm -hmm. I I just think it's an important thing to explore because it is such a huge part of the book. Yeah, it is important for me. It's more like Creed is boring. He's yeah. Evil terror, whatever Creed's motivations go beyond not interesting me. Creed's motivations bore me because I've seen them a million times before. He is a misogynist who gets off on women's pain and degradation and on dehumanizing women. Right. And we see this kind of like sexualized hatred of women in men all around us every single day. So Creed just took them to the extreme, right? So I see the emotional foundation, like the foundational belief of his actions. I understand it because I I see it so much and because it's so common, right? Whereas on the opposite side, Janice with the brain injury, the possibility of a traumatic change in the brain making someone a sociopath is something that I find really interesting. So it's not giving her a pass for her behavior, or at least that's not what I'm interested in doing. I'm just, I personally find a sort of interest in unlocking the physical functions of the human brain and the effect that those functions has on our behavior. But a head injury reason for being a serial killer is nothing new, though. I mean, just to name a few, Richard Ramirez, John Wayne Gacy, David Berkowitz, Ed Gein, the list goes on and on and on. Did they all have head injuries? All of them. Many, many more, too. Okay. Now I got to go read a study because I'm actually very interested now. Before it was only curiously, passively interested. And now I'm like, oh, people have actually studied this? Okay. Oh, absolutely. It is a thing. But to your point, though, I also find the abuse of Creed as a child to be horrific and tragic. And Mm -hmm. it makes me feel very sad for that child when I read those parts. And what does that kind of abuse do to the human brain while it's still developing? Yeah, you're right. And I get it because men like Creed are so terrifying to us as women because it's very real. It's a reality. But Also, like as a mother to a young boy reading about a woman who planned the murder of her son by creating a history of health problems and repeatedly poisoning him, I just, I can't look at her as any more sympathetic than Creed or somehow not as evil. I just, I can't. Yeah. And also, by the way, maybe don't Google nurses who kill because also (laughs) I'm adding that to my list of very real fears, things I'm afraid of. Yeah, I I hope I don't come off as wanting to sort of rank them in a hierarchy, much as like how you're viscerally horrified as a mother by Janice killing children. The sexual violation that Creed adds to his crimes has a, a special element of a visceral horror to me, but that's just our experiences are going to filter the way we emotionally feel the crimes we're reading about, but no, I'm not, I'm not going to intellectually rank them as more or less evil. They're both lock them both up, throw away the key. Please make sure they never hurt anyone again. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I do agree that Janice is by far more interesting, but if I'm being totally honest, just listening back to it. And then in some of the conversations that I've just had in the fandom, Mm -hmm. I do feel that there has been more empathy given for Janice. Like she's not as bad or more understandable. And that's just what makes me uncomfortable at the whole thing. Yeah. And just wanting to explore the topic of biases. And I, I do have to work against my visceral horror with what Creed does to make sure that intellectually I still keep Janice's crimes on the, the level of evil, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm working against my own visceral biases about sexual violation. To sort of be like, yes, don't let me forget. Don't let me try to empathize with Janice because she's horrific. It's such a good point, though, because that's what 
this book is about, I think, mm-hmm. like so much mm-hmm. of this book and why Janice was able to do what she did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is the, the depth of the book for me. It's, it's all those layers of mm-hmm. challenge and, and question that's done in such an entertaining way. So you don't even realize you're asking those questions. Yeah. And I do think it's, it's worth teasing out why we have those different responses. And I think our responses are definitely as much part of our socialization as the things that are being explored in the book. It's all intertwined. Mm-hmm. And I guess, and actually, now I think about it, that kind of brings me into that idea of Robin and Margot's connection, that she, she realizes she's got a connection there. And then we're reading the book and realizing we've got these connections as well. It's just, <laughs> oh, oh, inception. <laughs> but yeah, just female serial killers. They're rarer by yeah. orders of magnitude. And I think that adds to the tendency. That we have this such horror when women kill in this way, particularly. So you've got someone like Myra Hindley or Rose West. They're used as these extreme examples of women killing, which is partly because it's so rare that their name still stands there. But it's also because it kind of burns into the cultural psyche, especially when a mother like West does unspeakably awful things to her own children it horrifies us precisely because it shows a woman who so completely rejects the norms that we accept and our kind of desire to find i I think i guess some people do try and want to find mitigation for it but at least explanation i think it can arise from the same place because it's so heinous that we must find a reason for it and I think it's fascinating because I, th- I think I agree. We don't do the same for Creed in the same way. And actually, I think sometimes for men, we do almost complete opposite. So, I mean, I've, I've mentioned in the notes here, family annihilators. So that kind of thing happens. And you will see it in, re- in reports in, in the news where people are desperate to find a, a reason why this, this lovely man who loved his family and uh, um, then goes and kills everyone and very possibly then himself as well. And they'll give all sorts of reasons, you know, money, stress, nagging wife, uh, makes me very, very angry when I read stuff like that because, yeah, same. Yeah, it's so, what, what, why, no. And a male serial killer, we do, yes, absolutely. Okay, we, we understand that, but we do consign them to monsters and we, we either do one or the other with men, uh, but we, we're not, I guess we're not, as, we're not as horrified by men killing in the same way as we are when women do it, which is one of the reasons why I think Rowling works so hard to, to humanise his victims and mm-hmm. to give us creed as, as quite a pathetic individual, actually, who thinks so much of himself, but who strikes as puts in his place. I love that. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Oh. Just, I love how pathetic and contemptible Creed is and how mm-hmm. easily he's outclassed. Sorry, I just yeah. had to interject yeah. with no, that. No, totally. I, it's, oh. it's, it's magnificent. And I absolutely think it's one of the, the pinnacle points of the book is, is mm-hmm. perfection. We agree. Yes. Oh, yes. This cold showers all around after that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Over so here. Yeah, so many. <laughs> but this is, this is why I think Rowling does what she does with Janice because we quite like Janice in comparison to others and that's used against us as readers she misdirects us and I definitely don't think we're being invited to give her a pass or view her differently to Creed in fact I think we're 
being challenged to do exactly what we're talking about here, which is which is what even Strike realizes he needs to do. And yeah. I think that's going to benefit him going forward. But you know, enough of that at the moment. But yeah, I think it's just exciting, isn't it? I think really being forced in a in a pleasant way to to actually ask these questions and think deeply. I think it's one of the things that that the book excites me so much in doing. And I think if feminism, oh no, I said the F word has taught me anything it's been that women are whole people good and bad and that as a society we're much harsher towards women than men and i think we do look for mitigations for men more readily than we should but for different reasons than why we look for mitigation for women because with men it's excuses for a sex that we often expect to behave like this in certain circumstances that's why we have a phrase boys will be boys and with women, their explanations for why the woman failed so spectacularly to be a proper nurturing woman as she should. So they, they don't seem like they never seem like excuses for a woman, but they often do for a man. I like that you say we are being challenged by the text to challenge our own biases. I love that idea. God, this book is so good. Oh, isn't it? Yes. Before we get into the actual chapter, though, can I mm-hmm. say personally, <laughs> thank you to all of our listeners who complimented my Grave Digging Buddies theme song. I have been very heartwarmed by it I uh, because I feel like now I have a musical career ahead of me in book-related jingles, etc. Mm-hmm. So thanks, everyone. I'll try and come up with more theme songs for you in the future. And I'm trying not to make that sound like a threat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've had it stuck in my head for two weeks now. So thanks for that. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry for that digression. No, it's fun. But let's get to the last section of the book. Let's just read the epigraph for part seven, which is then came October full of merry glee. Yeah, Yeah, it did. Yeah. Jinx. And then for chapter 72. So this is when Strike and Robin meet with Anna and Kim and the rest of Margot's family. And basically all their hard work is worth it. The epigraph, this one's a really short one. They for not would from their work refrain. They wouldn't refrain from their work because it brings these rewards, not the fame and the, the money, but the comfort of knowing that you've gotten justice for someone that you've helped heal a family. So they're never going to stop doing the work they love because it, it brings chapters like this where they get to see the impact they've had. Oh. Starting in with the feelings early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jumping right in with those. So the chapter opens up by explaining that the press is all over both Strike and Robin for solving both Margot and Louise's murders. I love this for them, but I also love it because of how much Matthew probably hates it. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Let's be petty. Okay. (laughs) Matthew definitely hates that the career he hated so much for Robin is turning so well, especially right on the heels of their divorce. So sucks to suck. Yep. It has been since this book came out. One of my favorite daydreams is to think about how Matthew's reacting to all of this press coverage. Like every time he opens a newspaper, every time he turns on the TV, he has to see Robin and some dude saying that Robin should get a damehood and strike oh, and strike. Oh, he's so mad. He must be fuming. I also love that this is probably like the only topic under discussion in Massam for the next like mm-hmm. six months. So when Matthew goes home for Christmas with horrible Sarah and their baby, is it awful to say that I hope they have an ugly baby? <laughs> <laughs> it's not awful with their ugly baby. <laughs> 
Poor defenseless baby never did anything. But yeah, so when he goes home for Christmas, all he's going to hear in the pub, all the neighbors are going to be talking about, all the whispers are going to be about how amazing Robin is and how clever that strike is. And wouldn't it be wonderful if their new hometown hero was a dame? And I'm like, I'm living for it. You want to know who I also want to imagine reacting to this news we haven't seen in a while? Carver. Could you imagine how mad he would be? Is he still around? Like, what is Carver doing? I just know that he hates this. I like to think, you know, those comedy panel news shows in the UK, Clara, you know, like mm-hmm. eight out of 10 cats or what's yeah. the other ones? Is it, have I got news for you? Yes, you have mean? I got news for you? Thank you. Thank you. That's the one. I just love that Corman and Robin are probably answers on those panel shows. And I think that Corman would kind of get a kick out of people making fun of him on the shows. And yeah, Matthew turning on, have I got news for you? And having to hear Robin be the answer to the number one question. Oh, just, it makes you feel happy. Like, right. I just love it so much. That's the stuff that really gets me. Mm. I also like that strike finds the praise that they're getting flattering. I guess it goes back to my feeling that he doesn't receive enough words of affirmation from people in his life. Yeah. I just like that. All the praise they get. When they were at the racetrack in Lethal White, do you remember how Robin said that her goal was to make the agency the best in London? Of course. It's my favorite chapter. Yeah. Who remembers that, right? And now we've got the news. Of course, the private detectives now widely acclaimed as the capital's most talented. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it took them two years to achieve that goal. Good for them. Yeah. It rem- reminds me of the end of Cuckoo's Calling and strikes ambiguous feelings about I am become a name. He's kind of there but he's not 100% happy with it, but I think he's he's making the best of it. It's complex, gift and curse. I think that J.K. Rowling has talked about that that very much reflects her own feelings about it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how awesome Pat is. Yes! I'm always here to do that. I love the bit that we see about her because it just paints a very clear picture of their professional relationship, I think. You know, the way Mm -hmm. it says she's there every day, opening and closing. And telling the journalists to sod off. It's just like not a lot of emotion, but fiercely loyal. Immovable. Yes. I love that. Honestly, this part and whenever she brought Strike Soup, that mm-hmm. really made me like her a whole lot. Her loyalty is touching and so endearing. And I hope that we get to see more of this side of her moving forward. I think Pat's going to become the agency's rock of Gibraltar. She's the unmovable center there. No one is getting past Pat for anything yeah she's really holding down the fort right and it reminds me of earlier in the book although i don't know if i'm making this up does it say that she's not impressed by the fame or impressed by him it definitely did say that she wasn't at all impressed by him and instead seemed to look for excuses to hate him didn't it (laughs) it it deliberately contrasted her to the temp who was secretly recording him with her phone yeah it's just the whole thing you know this doesn't phase her i'd get in so much trouble for taking sneaky pictures of strike if i was their temp (laughs) It's not because I want to sell them. I just want to have them. Oh my God. For me. <laughs> I'm just a stalker. I'm not trying to make money off it. It's fine. Pro bono stalking. I just want them for me. God. <laughs> Don't pretend like you can judge. <laughs> I mean, would you share them with me? Of course I would. Thank you. They'll be collectively passed around. Yeah. They'll be used as currency. In prison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get put away for taking pictures of a strike and then we pass around yeah i have no defense for that i do it (laughs) personally one of my favorite takeaways from the whole beginning is just that strike is growing his beard out i mean i feel like that's 
the most important piece of information we get. It's yeah. very important. He's going full black bear. Hmm. There's a lot of people to talk about. Let's start with some of the people that aren't having a great time in the press though. So Gregory Talbot and Dr. Gupta. Yeah. I do feel really bad for mm-hmm. both of them because what's happening to them is unfair, especially with Dr. Gupta because they're I feel like they're kind of putting a lot of responsibility on him for recommending mm-hmm. Janice. Like, oh, I'm sorry. He was polite and gave a reference for an employee he thought was decent. What a criminal. And he was so nice. I feel like Talbot at least should be relieved that the news of his father hiding a snuff film didn't get out. Because that would have made it 10 times worse. In the back of his mind, he's got to be like, okay, well, at least all they're blaming him for is not catching the killer and I can say he was sick. Yeah, but at the same time, like he was on the right track. It was just that he couldn't do it because of his illness. Yeah, so Mm. none of it is Gregory's fault though because he was a child. So it just must be really stressful. None of the strike feels bad for them too, actually. His understated compassion is one of his most appealing traits, I think. Yeah. So let's also talk about Rokeby. It says... Strike's father, on the other hand, was happy to continue associating his name with Strike's, issuing a fulsome statement of pride in his eldest son through his publicist. Fuming quietly, Strike ignored all requests for comments. <laughs> I feel like this is a little bit of an unreliable narrator situation. I think if we're told this from Rokeby's perspective, he probably was also being asked a lot of questions about this. So putting out a statement doesn't really seem like a bad thing to me. I mean, he might also have a personal agenda of, again, trying to tell Strike that he's proud of him. And here's mm-hmm. the thing. I've been angry at Rokeby a lot during this book, but I do actually think that he's proud. The more I think about this and kind of think through everything we've been told from Strike's perspective, I do see a pattern. Yeah, I think it would be really great to see more of Rokeby in the books to kind of test this unreliable narrator theory that you're talking about. Yeah, I completely agree. I think we're getting Strike's veneer of anger there but if you look at the facts that are shared in that statement that Rokeby issued a statement of pride through his publicist you can actually read it as quite a respectful thing to do because he didn't personally grandstand about his son and use it like that but he did publicly acknowledge his son's achievements so I think it's kind of a nice thing for him to do actually. Like in regards to actually being proud of him it certainly seems that Strike is the only one of Rokeby's children with this kind of accomplishment strike is the most newsworthy i mean so you've got um his other kids jewelry designer television presenter not there's anything wrong with that but it doesn't carry quite the same excitement of like catching serial killers right well and that it's on his own on his own because al said you're the only one of us who doesn't use it and yeah, yeah corman is the only one who doesn't use it so i could see rokeby being like wow yeah i'm proud of my son Although I'm like, what right does he have to be proud? He contributed nothing except 50% of the DNA. I think he could still be proud. It doesn't seem like he's taking credit for it. That would be very different. Yeah, taking credit for any of it would be totally different. But I do think that he's proud. I'm with you, Kenz. I want more of Rokeby in book six. I want to dive into what's going on here and, and get some some juicy backstory. Gotta come, hasn't it? Definitely. Yes, it has to. It also talks about Creed. It gives me a lot of satisfaction that Creed is just a footnote in the story. (laughs) I don't know if he would be fully aware of what's going on. I don't remember if they get TV. Probably gets newspapers, right? Hopefully. I think they'd be aware of what was going on outside. All the nurses would be gossiping about it. Yeah. It's just that he just had this vision of himself like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And it didn't really work out, did it? Kind of backfired on him. Yeah. And I bet he hates being outdone by a woman. (sighs) 
Absolutely, he does. Like you were saying that everybody in that prison is probably talking about it. Other inmates, the doctors, there's news probably spreads pretty fast. So I'm sure that Creed knows and is just furious. Just salt in his wound. So, so far we've got two men, Creed and Matthew, both silently fuming. Too bad. So sad. Tiniest violin. Speaking of Janice though, there are these few sentences where it talks about how Janice had outdone Creed in terms of both the number of her victims and in getting away with it for so long. The way it's described as the photos in her sitting room being leaked to the press, the evidence being carried away, her being shown in court, it really just paints a picture like I can see this on the news, right? Mm -hmm. And just of how intense the media coverage was and what a big deal this is for Strike and Robin. And probably a lot of that is just this little nice old lady is guilty of all of these things. Yeah, it really does paint a good picture of that. I got to say, while I was reading the description of the stream of people who are suspicious about how their loved ones died in Janice's care, turning into a tide of people, that just gave me shivers. I'm really curious to find out how many of these deaths that you're talking about, Ken's, the loved ones, are Janice was actually responsible for. Most of the killings that we know of from Janice's ends were were personally motivated, right? And then poisonings like the Athorns, the victims were vulnerable enough to sort of fall through the cracks. So I'm just wondering how many of her normal patients she'd have been able to get away with killing. She did also say that she just likes doing it. So mm-hmm. I could see her kind of getting the urge and finding a patient who it could be maybe easily explained away at the time. And if she was actually smart and careful about it, she, she totally could have gotten away with it if no one's looking for murder. With respect to her being a serial killer, the, the psychology of that is it's an urge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's something that she will have to have done to kind of satisfy the obsession. Next up, one of my favorite people, Brian Tucker. I love this. I know that Strike wishes he would stop, but I feel like he deserves this after being the joke for so long. I think it's a good illustration of how people deal with grief and injustice differently. So Strike is the quiet, you know, I'll get my revenge by just being the best. Whereas Tucker, he, he wants the public redress. He wants that kind of sense of being seen to be vindicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think neither is better. They're just different. And on a, a less a thoughtful note, I'll say that I really hope that Tucker is making absolute bank off of all these interviews and talk show appearances because he earns it. He like he deserves it because mm-hmm. they they pay people for that, right? Like he's getting paid. Yeah. yeah. So he's getting a heaping serving of justice and public acknowledgement that he was right, and that comes with a side of. Nice. I now have a pile of cash and can take a luxury vacation with my family because we're finally at peace and we can go be at peace in the Maldives next to the ocean, perhaps. It's just what I'm what I want for him and for his sweet granddaughter, whose name I've forgotten. Lauren. Lauren. I'm going to put that into the universe for him. Vision board. I'm vision boarding it. Manifesting. Also on the topic of Strike and Robin getting knighthoods. I'll say that I want that to happen, not because I think Strike or Robin would really care about it, but because it would be another thorn in Matthew's foot that he'd have to walk on every single day. I knew you were going to say that. Yes, knowing that Dame Robin Strike is out there living her best life. He said Strike. Yeah, Dame Robin Strike. Dame Robin Strike. I'm anticipating the name change by a little. No, I think she'll keep her name forever because I'm biased because I kept my name. So I don't know. I think there's a contrast between her not 
taking Matthews. Could be. And the strikes detective agency does roll off the tongue pretty well. Let's talk about someone that I like a little bit less than Brian Tucker, though, Irene. Understatement. I don't know if I have much on this, but it just stands out to me that Irene calls Janice, again, a bit of a man-eater. It's just really odd. Yeah, it jumped out at me, actually, because I didn't get that impression from Janice, to be honest. Yeah. Or even that Irene thought that before. So, I mean, Janice seemed a little bit forlorn, really. Um, and it was Irene who was the chasing the boys good time girl, whereas Janice was she was almost the plain best friend sidekick. But then I think Irene, she's not the type to be slow to spice up a story, you know, when she's retelling something. So I kind of took it with a pinch of salt, I think. Yeah, I guess I kind of always thought it was Irene picking up on Janice's desire to be desired, but that might be giving Irene too much credit. I don't know if she's actually that perceptive i thought initially that it might just be like a bit of revisionist history on irene's part like she seems like the kind of person whose account of the past is really heavily colored by what she thinks now she just projects her thoughts now back onto the past so i thought that no she finds out janice killed all these people she retcons in her own mind the little incidents where Janice might have a crush into her being a full-on man-eater. I did look it up, though, because I felt like she had said it before. And it's actually Gloria that says that Irene was always calling her a man-eater. So it is something she said in the past. It's just hard to say why unless it was picking up on things. Maybe Irene was the one closest enough to Janice to occasionally see the mask drop, but not really Mm -hmm. pick up on what was going on behind it. So like sensing, sensing the desperation for men. And of course, you don't ever guess killer. Yeah. When there's IBS, you don't think (laughs) serial poisoner. You think Lambuna, right? You go with the most obvious answer. I know we give Irene a hard time, but I do feel bad for her. We see her putting blame on herself. Yeah. I mean, I agree to some extent because those are all questions that would come up for anyone in this circumstance but I do think she's actually quite enjoying the attention because <laughs> it's the same vibe that when she was like with Strike and Robin and yeah. like really enjoying being the center of attention there I think that she's going to be lapping up it's just those quiet moments that I'm wondering about you know like it has to creep up on her it's interesting about the quiet moments irene strikes me as the kind of person who will do anything to not be alone with her own thoughts i don't think there are Mm. many quiet moments of reflection (laughs) in irene's life i think that if there is she will instantly end it by finding something else right she just strikes me as that kind of person but that means it's still there yeah still there deep down it's just i have a hard time shaking the feeling that it's all great for her all the time although you know getting interviewed by the daily mail a journalist had to sit down and listen to and write down everything she said. <laughs> like, I think that's kind of a dream come true for Irene. And, you know, her IBS is cleared up, I assume. So that she's got to be feeling a bit better physically, too. So maybe that compensates for the nagging questions. Her house probably smells a bit nicer. Too. <laughs> probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do like the way this paragraph ends when Irene says, you don't expect this from a nurse, do you? And the line that follows, and on this count, if no other, Strike was forced to agree with Irene Hickson. Forced Forced. to agree. 
I like the if no other. It's yeah. like, so Irene says the sky is blue and Shrek's going to be like, well, you know what? <laughs> Actually, I disagree. But this is where Strike faces his own biases and admits that he too was fooled by Janice's facade. It says that it tempers his celebrations a little bit. And I do like the little note that Nick and Elsa keep trying to brag on him. I love that. Nick yeah. and Elsa are proud of him and probably bragging to all their friends at work about Aww. how awesome their BFF is. That's sweet. The whole not actually looking at Janice's alibi was a pretty big mistake. I'd kind of be kicking myself if I was in his position too. But then again, I'm I'm a perfectionist, so. But he got there in the end. Slow and steady won the race. And I think he should give himself a little bit of a break. I mean, he's had a very hard year. And he's not saying this about Robin too. Like, why didn't she question Janice's alibi? He would never do that. The thought has probably never entered his mind. We're always harder on ourselves than we are on the people we love, aren't we? Yeah. I just like that you said we love. I wondered if you were going to pick up on that. Of course. I was just giving it enough time for a dramatic pause. Just (laughs) letting it sit. Letting it marinate. Okay. We learn that Anna wants to thank them in person, which is very sweet. And even though that they're in daily contact with each other, he and Robin haven't seen each other in two weeks. It's okay to admit that you miss her strike. I will die when they actually ever decide to tell each other, oh, I missed you. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm already same. dying. So since solving the case, does that mean they didn't even see each other the night that Robin found the body and Corm confronted Janice? So like, no wonder he hasn't been able to feel triumphant. He's basically got crime-solving blue balls. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Of course. There's a lot <laughs> of that going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no wonder. I mean, I imagine that they both had to be questioned, right? So they probably were both taken in separately and just never got a chance to see each other. Yeah, and then the press descended. Yeah. Okay, let's get to Charlotte. Oof. Dun, dun, dun. More Charlotte. Charlotte's text comes in. Just a small aside with Charlotte's text. This is another time when he picks up the phone expecting to see a text from Robin and gets Mm -hmm. Charlotte's nonsense instead. Last time, it was that that made him realize he needed to call and apologize to Robin. And this time, he's going to be changing his number. It's great. That's not just a small aside. That's a great parallel. And I love it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) So Charlotte's text congratulating him and apologizing for not supporting the agency. Had that just been it? Not too bad. But no, she can't do that. It was never going to be just that. No, No, I know. The guilt and manipulation. When she says, you never called the hospital, you'd probably be glad if I died. That it would be a problem solved and you liked solving things. Oh, it just irks me. You mentioned like not starting off too badly. I was reading manipulation from the very beginning. Like that congratulations anyway felt super passive aggressive, focusing on how he's proving people wrong instead of like, you know, bringing justice, including her, which I feel like also she's kind of telling on herself here that she wishes she'd been supportive because he's become a wild success. Not yeah. because it would have made her a good partner to him. No, I know. I know. I'm just making a bad joke. Like if that's all oh. you said, it wouldn't be so bad. But of course, that's not all with Charlotte. It never is. Every sentence is just suffused with manipulation and passive yeah. aggression and ugh, awful. It's really interesting to me when she says, don't think I'm not grateful, but I know that you'd have done that for anyone and that she wanted something more that he wouldn't have given to anyone else. And I know that this is sensitive because I never want to dismiss a mental health crisis, especially in regards to a suicide attempt. 
But that just kind of says to me that she didn't get what she wanted out of contacting him. She's disappointed that he saved her life, but then continued to not engage with her. It's not the first time it makes me wonder how much of the whole thing was an attempt to get him back. Yeah, you know, that's a great point, Lindsay. It's funny and kind of a coincidental sort of way. The struggle that we're all facing with Charlotte in this book, condemning her manipulative behavior while trying to have compassion for her struggles with her mental health. It was yeah. exactly what Strike was dealing with for 16 years. I mean, think about it. It's mm-hmm. a bit of a mind fuck just trying to navigate this while discussing it on the podcast. I mean, could you imagine yeah. living with that day in and day out? No wonder he said enough is enough. <sighs> That's a great point because it is really Absolutely. hard to try and discuss. That's just making me exhausted thinking about mm-hmm. it, Ken's. The next part when she says, funny, I've started to appreciate people who are decent to everyone, but it's too late for that too, isn't it? kind of shocks me in terms of just putting her selfishness on display because I'm like, what do you mean you're just starting to appreciate people who are decent to everyone? It's clear she wouldn't be bothered by someone who was horrible to others as long as they weren't horrible to her and they served a purpose for her. Yeah. It's like the chisels in Lethal White. They don't really care as long as you're treating them okay. It doesn't really matter if you treat yeah. others as less than. I also highly doubt that she's actually starting to appreciate decent people at all. She's full of shit. She's not appreciating decent people any more than she ever did. She just thinks it's what Strikes wants to hear or thinks something that'll work for him. But even if that's the case, she is, again, telling on herself that Mm. at 40 years old, she's just now starting to appreciate the value of being decent to people. I mean, I'd say it's true, but not in the way we might read it as people who aren't incredibly selfish narcissists. I think she's twigged that decent people serve a purpose for her rather than just being boring drags on her desires so it's still all about her Uh, oh decent dull people aren't such a waste of my time after all that's how it comes across to me her first text ends with her saying that she and jago are separating and she makes sure to say that she's the one leaving him do we all agree that this is just more manipulation she wants him to know she's single and it's her choice And then she reminds him that she'll always love him. So that's it. I mean, it's just pure manipulation, you know, not coming to the hospital after she overdosed and then not engaging with her, really causing Charlotte to just pull out pretty much any stops, anything she thinks might work. You know, she's basically, I don't know, throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. (laughs) (laughs) And you know that she's pretty careful to make absolutely no mention of her children because she knows that would be, that's an issue for Mm -hmm. strike. So she's going to stay hush hush about them. I also, yeah. I'm kind of wondering what kind of a prenup Jago went into the wedding with because I think their divorce is going to be real messy. And I'm wondering if what she might get out of him is having influence on whether or not she leaves him, if that makes sense. I don't know. I mean, they're both pretty independently wealthy, right? Yeah. Would it matter to her that much? Maybe not, but I don't know. It seems to me that wealthy people want more than anything else to get more money and to accumulate even more wealth. I was also sort of wondering whether she'd get to keep the title or not. Like, is he a Viscount yet? Or is his dad still alive? And, you know, there's probably property and horses and the castle of fucking Croy, etc. That Because for all these books, we've seen Strike dealing with these rich people who are already rich, looking for weapons they can use to make their divorces something that that makes them even richer. I feel like Charlotte just probably really enjoys like the perks of being Jago's wife. Um, And I'm wondering if she's really going to that easily give those up, even though we know that Drago is abusive. I don't know. I might be constructing this all in my own head, but I do think their divorce is going to be messy as hell. 
I feel like she'd enjoy all that. The messiness? Yeah. Oh, I bet she would because it's drama, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It's time for the next stage in her chaos, which is a very Mm -hmm. messy divorce and getting a lot of child support, I assume, for doing very little parenting. I mean, what jumps out at me and what I find really quite exciting actually about this text and Strike's response is that he's just been thinking about being hoodwinked by a performance of femininity. And that's exactly what Charlotte's doing here. I'm not sure he consciously made the link himself, but because he's in that headspace, he's less vulnerable to falling for it. But he thinks about her wielding vulnerability like a weapon. So I think he does realize that. But that is femininity as a performance. Yeah, I love that. That is such a good catch. And he is pretty clear-sighted about exactly how she's manipulating him or trying to, isn't he? Oh, yeah. He is seeing it. He's like this text. He could have written this text himself because he sees exactly what she's doing. So the quote goes... The rainy daylight illuminated the phone screen, reflecting his bearded face back at him as he scowled at a text so Charlottean he could have written it himself. Apparent resignation to her fate, the attempts to provoke him into reassurance, the vulnerability wielded like a weapon. One thing I really like about this is his face being reflected back at him. It reminds me of when Robin's face is reflected back at her in the office door before she goes back to order flowers. And I remember saying that with Robin, it felt like it was the truth reflecting back at her. And I very mm. much also get that here. That is such a good catch. I love that. So, you know, you, I just as you said that, actually, it kind of came to mind that it's almost like he's a bit bored with Charlotte now. It's like he knows it all back to front. So it's like there's an emptiness to what he's reading. It's like it doesn't quite touch him in the way that it might have done at one point because he's just so paint by numbers now. So that reflection is like, you know, this is empty. This is nothing. I'm, I'm looking at myself. Yeah, this is all I can see now because yes. she's nothing really. Yeah. Oh, there's no mystery anymore. No. Yeah. I'm just really glad to see we got another mention of his beard because I would not <laughs> want anyone to forget that he's bearded now. I agree. It's very important. Got to sprinkle those in throughout. The- yeah. This next bit has caused a lot of debate. It says he thought of all the things he could have told her, which would have given her hope that he'd wanted to call the hospital that he dreamed about her since the suicide attempt and that she retained a potent hold over his imagination that he tried to exercise, but couldn't, I guess it's the last bit that causes the most debate, but I feel like the significant part, the telling part is his choice to not say those things, to not have done those things. Like you said, there's been a lot of controversy about this and we're going to go partially, I think, into this in our predictions episode, but some people are using this to kind of rationalize predictions that Strike might have some sort of sordid affair with Charlotte in a future book or something similar. And it honestly, it drives me nuts um, because of course he's going to be dreaming about her. His subconscious is just trying to piece together how he feels about her and what's happened and everything. So like, of course, he's going to continue to think about her. And, uh, you know, you've mentioned before, Lindsay, about how there are people in your own life that like, you know, are bad for you, but Mm -hmm. you know, you got to keep those boundaries up. You can still think about them, but not want anything to do with them. I also think it's significant that he was going to ignore this, but changed his mind because in my opinion, it means that he is choosing to end this back and forth. He's making the conscious choice to remove himself as much as he can. Ignoring it would have left it open, but he doesn't want to do that. And then in his response, he tells her that she needs to stay alive for her kids The not me isn't there, but it's heavily implied. And then, of course, he says he's going to change his number. 
I love that. I'm so proud of him for taking this step forward because it really feels like a final step for him as far as Mm -hmm. completely exercising the Charlotte demon from his mind. (laughs) I'm getting Talbot images in my head now. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a big step forward for him. So I'm very, very proud of him for the steps that he's taking towards changing his number and really cutting off Charlotte for good. Yeah. I mean, no, 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 no. Strike is not in love with Charlotte Strike is not going to go back to Charlotte it, no not, not not happening I mean this section he's thinking of possible responses and he's assessing each one to reject it because it might give a hope yes. of reconciliation that he doesn't want he absolutely doesn't want so he wanted to call the hospital because it's a natural thing to do when someone's been in crisis and he wanted to underline that he was just treating her as any, he would anyone and he dreamed of her because he'd been upset by the experience because, of course, he didn't wish her dead because she's got kids to look after. And she, she still held too much of a potent place in his imagination that he wanted to get rid of and wouldn't be able to until he went completely no contact. So he's just running through all the things he then says in his reply, rejecting any possibly ambiguous statement that would lead her to think he still loved and wanted her when he doesn't absolutely agree on all points the line that people seize on is that potent hold on his imagination line right Mm -hmm. but there's imagination and then as you said there's reality and there's conscious choice and it's what he's choosing what he actually wants that's what's important not the lingering effects of the trauma bonding that he had with charlotte that's influencing him no it's his conscious it's the reality of what he's doing that's important and I love that you said trauma because so much of his connection with Charlotte is tied to Leda for me Mm -hmm. and come on I mean we know what the end game is here we know that he's in love with Robin I don't think any of us would argue that he's not (laughs) right so yeah I agree this is done for him also the fact that he rereads the message to make sure it's exactly what he wants to convey and he's finally honest about why he never changed his number And he says that it's time to cut that last thread. It's all very deliberate. I'm not saying that Charlotte won't ever try again, although I know I'm more in that camp than others, but for strike, this feels like an end for him in my opinion. Agreed. And it wouldn't be described as that last final thread otherwise. Exactly. I wish we'd gotten to see a bit more of all that thinking he'd been doing. So like, what kind of thoughts were those that you were having, Carmen? Like apart from what (laughs) you said here, what? What other thoughts were running through the little brain of yours? Can you Mm. share some of them with us, please? Because I'd be very interested to know. Probably a lot of thinking about who and what he really wants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know know who you two sound like? You sound like Robin. Do I? Well, yeah, because I want to know what he's thinking. Yes. (laughs) I want to see inside of your skull, Strike. Show (laughs) us the brain. (laughs) Charlotte's last text. I don't think I've ever felt so envious in my life as I am of that girl, Robin. It goes back to what I was saying in the last episode about how I think Charlotte is able to pick up on their connection and see that Robin is a permanent fixture in his life. She's his main woman. She also calls Robin that girl, Mm -hmm. which is obviously a goad to try and get a response. But I also think that's pretty nasty, vindictive move on her part too, because she's trying to undermine Robin in his eyes. So there's a sense of her viewing Robin as lower by using that condescension, but also of highlighting to strike that Robin is much younger, which we already know he he was a teensy bit concerned about. It's just, it's so mean. It's a mean thing to say. How dare she be mean about our Robin? 
about his Robin. Do you think he's still concerned about that? I think it's kind of left in career of evil land. Yeah, I don't think he's concerned about it now. But this is about how Charlotte's behaving and what she's attempting to do. So the fact that she fails because he's way past that is great, but it doesn't change her being a nasty piece of work. It's just illustrating to me that with the longer text before it, she knows him well enough to guess what might hurt him, but not well enough to understand who he is. You know who does know who he is? That girl, Robin. Oh, I just remembered. Didn't Polworth say that Robin girl in chapter one, too? It's just a little bit more of the beginning ending parallels that she's referred to as that Robin girl, both at the beginning and the end of the novel. So as Strike is waiting for Robin to pick him up, he gets a call from Polworth. This call has kind of captivated, I think, the entire fandom because we all want to know how that meeting went don't we? Desperately. Definitely. And the fact that he calls her your Robin and Strike doesn't contradict him here. He just goes for the joke response about the queen, which is really funny. I love Polworth and Strike's banter, even when Polworth's behavior makes my eyes want to roll out of my head. And yeah, the fact that Strike doesn't correct Polworth when he says your Robin is just too cute. I love it. It is too cute. And it's nice to see that Polworth has gone from that girl Robin to your Robin in the space of the year. She is his Robin. She is his Robin. I guess Strike's no longer trying to avoid these like double dates and meet in the family type situations, right? Because I know this isn't technically either of those, but it essentially is both of those. His only word of caution is that Robin might not like (laughs) Polworth. Also a note that that joke about the queen, I am still putting my money on that as being sneaky foreshadowing. I know you are. I'll save it for the predictions episode. Okay. When Robin pulls up and she asks if she's late, but Strike says, no, he's early. I know we've talked about and kind of joked about Robin's focus on punctuality in this book, but I feel like this has been highlighted to show the change in Strike on that. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Joe does a really great job of drawing attention to these changes in his behavior consistently throughout the rest of the Mm -hmm. book after their fight in 41. And this is a particularly good example of that. Yeah, that's a good point. And it makes my, what is this foreshadowing, kind of weaker, (laughs) which fine. Uh, This is a work meeting that he's early for, not, you know, it's usually personal stuff that he shows up late to, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, he's also waiting for her earlier in the next chapter. And that's very personal. Oh, that's so true. I love it. Oh, we get another beard mention. Nice beard, said Robin, as she pulled away from the curb in the rain. You look like a guerrilla leader who's just pulled off a successful coup. Feel like one, said Strike. And in fact, right now, reunited with Robin, he felt the straightforward sense of triumph that had eluded him for days. Oh, I love it. I do too. So flirty. (laughs) The fact that he didn't feel a sense of triumph over solving the case until after he and Robin were reunited is literally the cutest shit I've ever read in my entire life. And I need more of it. Reunited and it feels so good. That strike just now. Mm. That's him. It is. You know, they should just really spend most of their time together, like live in the same place or something. Honestly, it just makes sense. I love the exchange when Strike tells Robin that Polworth wants to meet her because Robin is flattered. She's probably noting that that wall between her and his personal life is no longer there. And it just feels very carefree and fun. I wish there was more of it. I want to hear all of it. Yeah, I so want to see the sort of camaraderie that Polworth and Robin have. That's pretty high up there on my things I want to hear referenced in future books list. 
Yeah, I really do too. And I want to know what Polar says to strike after that meeting. You know what I mean? Like probably like, what the fuck are you waiting for? Exactly. You <laughs> this next bit is so good too. And talking about Miss Jones. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the beard will put her off. Some women like them, said Robin. And Strike couldn't help wondering whether Robin was one of them. What are our opinions? Do we think I she's mean... one of them? <laughs> we all know the answer to that. We, I think we Yeah, <laughs> I think she definitely is now. Because earlier in the book, when she feels that wave of liking simply for how Strike looks, and it says that she tried to explain it away by maybe she's just reacting against clean-jawed, slim, and conventionally handsome men. Ah, so, logic. Yeah, she is now. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of why she comments on the beard, which is funny because it kind of reminds me of in Lethal White when Strike makes that cheeky comment of nice dress while they're at the Paralympic reception and she just so happens to be wearing a dress that he thinks she looks gorgeous in. And the first time we ever see Robin openly appreciating Strike's appearance is when his stubble was growing in thick. So I think Robin's definitely starting to see more of the appeal. Yeah, so I, I, Robin, I am convinced, preferred the beast before he changed into the handsome prince. So Who didn't? I, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if he got a reference <laughs> like that sometime. I feel like that's a universal girlhood experience. We're like, oh, yeah. why did he change into that dude? Like, oh, that's not good. Bring back the beast. Back. <laughs> Talk about a tale as old as time, though, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, I should be watching. Tale as old as time. <laughs> That is a very good impression. I am that very is. impressed. <laughs> yeah, Robin is definitely into it. If not in general, then in this specific case, she's into it. Like it's Strike's beard. So yeah, mm. it belongs to Strike. She's into it. Would a beard on any other face look as sexy? I believe I'm quoting Shakespeare directly there. Yeah, I think so. And I think the answer is no. Let's go on to them at Anna and Kim's house. Right away, I think we're seeing some ring structure or coming full circle with Anna wearing the same outfit that she was on their first meeting. I just love when Anna announces that she wants to hug them both and then does so. Mm. It's very endearing, very human. Have they ever been hugged by a client before? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Miss Jones had tried. But <laughs> I'm guessing a lot of their female clients have tried to hug Strike. Actually, I'm betting a lot of their male clients would be grateful to hug Robin in thanks. I'd like to hug both of them. Anna says, I can't ever express to you how grateful, how grateful I am, what you've given me. She made an ineffable gesture and shook her head. It's just so, so strange. I'm incredibly happy and relieved, but at the same time, I'm grieving. Does that make sense? Totally, said Robin. Strike grunted. <laughs> Go ahead, Pulse. I already know. <laughs> commiserative grunting. I love the commiserative grunting. <laughs> Honest to God, I wish that I had a partner for social events that I could just rely on to say the appropriate words. And all I'd have to do is just grunt commiseratively or in agreement. Like he is living the dream with Robin. He really lucked out with that. Okay. Maybe part of it is that he's not good at saying things in this situation, but also maybe there's a bit of really personal things starting to play in his mind. So he'd rather just not say much because he clearly understands how Anna is feeling probably more so than Robin. Uh, yeah, you make a good point. There is a lot Strike could say to show that he relates to, to Anna and understands her, but he's not going to because it would be really personal and he's just yeah. not the kind to open up to people like that. Getting away from my nonsense and into sort of what you're saying he might be thinking he thinks of his reaction when he got the phone call that Lita had died 
And he says, amid the engulfing wave of grief had been a slight pinprick of relief, which had shocked and shamed him and which had taken a long time to process. Over time, he'd come to understand that in some dark corner of his mind, he'd been dreading and half expecting the news. The axe had fallen at last. Suspense was forever over. Lita's appalling taste in men had culminated in a sordid death on a dirty mattress. And while he'd missed her ever since, he'd be a liar if he claimed to miss the toxic mixture of anxiety, guilt, and dread he'd endured over her last couple years of life. First of all, whenever we get bits about Leda, I'm always curious what we're going to see in them later when we finally learn the truth. Mm. But that's kind of an aside. I can't help but compare this to what's just happened with Charlotte. You know, the yes, he has missed her, but he can't miss the toxic bits and the relief that comes with that ending. Man, I love that connection to Charlotte. Pools, didn't you say something recently about Charlotte and Leda being sort of like dark parallels of each other? I go on about this a lot. About how, honestly, a great deal of Strike's relationship with Charlotte to me is like him trying to symbolically save his mother to make up for what he perceives as his inability to save Leda. So I feel like that is a big part of the allure of Charlotte for him. I agree. And the fact that he connected with Charlotte for the first time right around the time his mother died, I think that strengthened the effect for him. So I think that Charlotte is a sort of parallel to Leda in a lot of ways. And that Strike's whole relationship with her is about trying to save her in a way that he couldn't save Leda. Yeah, I thought the same. In fact, scribbled in Black Biro in my copy. I know people get cross with me for doing this, but it's it's annotated. Yes, yeah, scribbled next to this paragraph is connected to Charlotte. That's what I've written, because my thoughts have long been that as he releases his misunderstandings about love connected to Charlotte, and that leads him to understanding how he feels about Robin. Mm-hmm. So as he releases his distorted perspectives about love connected to Leda, similar things will happen, both with Robin and others in his life, including, I suspect, Rokeby. I love that. It's odd that this quote made me think a bit of Joan too. So -hmm. like earlier in the book, it says a small part of strike of which he was ashamed, wanted everything to be over and for the morning to begin in earnest. It's that same sort of waiting for the axe to fall with drawn out illnesses that leads to a lot of guilt and shameful feelings, I think. Yeah, this also made me think of Joan, but in a different way, Mm -hmm. in the way that letting go of that divided loyalty and the feeling that he had to pick Leda over accepting Joan's love and giving his love to her in return and how that could be reflected in letting go of the loyalty to Charlotte and choosing to give and accept love from someone else. Oh my God, the parallels. There's another bit of this quote that I'm interested in for different reasons, and this might be a big stretch, but I think that's part of what we do on this podcast. Lita's appalling taste in men had culminated in her death. So This is obviously referring to Whitaker because Strike believes that Whitaker killed Lita. Mm -hmm. But if it turns out that Whitaker didn't kill her and that her death wasn't actually due to her appalling taste in men, but to something else entirely, then if that's the case, then this sort of feels like that like ironic foreshadowing hint thing JK does where she says something totally wrong and we just skim past it. And then we're like, oh, wait, shit, that's not what culminated in Lita's death at all. I don't know if I'm just imagining that. No, it's definitely possible. This is exactly what I mean by what are we going to see when we go back and reread. I'm excited. (laughs) We get this description of Anna and Kim's home, and it says that the books were all arranged by color. And this is just funny to me because do you guys remember about a year or so ago, 
when JK Rowling posted a video of her bookshelf that she had arranged by color. <laughs> and some people were not pleased by that. I remember that. And I had that exact same thought. And the books by color felt like a little Easter egg to me. Yeah, me too. And she had a, a quote from the fairy queen up above it, if anybody noticed that. Oh, I don't think I did. I just like that because their whole house is black and white and gray. And I just kind of like that the only color is coming from books. I just think it's a lovely little aside about books providing color to our world. I don't know. That might be totally cheesy, but I'm still going to go with it. No, I'm here for that. That's nice. It's a bit cheesy, but yeah, I like it. That's cute. (laughs) And we get Roy, which is slightly awkward, maybe. I mean, he's probably remembering the last time they met and he was doing a lot of shouting. Although I absolutely love the exchange he has with Strike where Roy says he feels ashamed for never hiring someone years ago. (laughs) And Strike says, well, that's not very good for our egos, Roy, said Strike, stroking the purring cat, implying that anyone could have done what we did. (laughs) So funny. (laughs) Frankly, I'm astonished that you included this passage and made zero comment about Strike stroking a purring cat. Me? Yes. Look, sometimes I have some self-control. Sometimes. Not just me that thinks about Strike's fondness for Robin's hair and visaged a time when he might stroke it contentedly as she purrs. Oh, well, now I am. Stop it. How am I supposed to live? Yeah, I very much see his fingers running through her hair as often as possible. I love how much that cat loves Strike. Because let's be real, if we had the chance... We too, like Kegney, would be up on Strike's lap getting pets like that every single day. Don't deny it. I'm not denying anything. I also really like Strike doesn't want to upset the cat by getting up to hug Una. This man understands how to do cats. He understands the rules of cats. You don't. Or he's like, sorry, I can't have a hug because, you know, there's a cat. Listen, the cat chooses your lap. You're not moving until the cat chooses to get off your lap. That's just the rules of cats. He doesn't seem to mind the cat, though, does he? Maybe he finds it comforting. It's nice of him just to pet the kitty. It's cute. We also see Una again, which I love because she's great. She's so awesome. I honestly, I hope that we get to see more of her in future books, maybe in the same capacity that we got to see Robin use her connections with Izzy to get that interview with Greed. I don't know, some sort of like scandal with a church or something, or (laughs) I don't know. But in any case, I'm going to need more dick and ball jokes from her because that just made my life. Oh, yeah, that was funny. I don't know, though. I mean, I think everyone's still waiting on an update from the Quines, and I'm not really holding my breath for either. Yeah, me neither. But I want to know how they're all doing. I just really love the way this chapter explores the mixed emotions of the situation. So we get that with Anna. Robin wonders how Roy must be feeling to be faced with Una. We also get this with Cynthia a lot, where Robin wonders if she's really happy to have Margot a part of their lives again. I love the paragraph where it says they'd have divorced Robin thought with absolute certainty, but then wondered whether she wasn't tangling up Margot with herself as she tended to do through the case. So this for me is such a clever character section. It's Robin's odd clairvoyance as well, which is referenced a little bit later too. But it's also Robin being reflective about her own biases which she's actually a little better at than Strike and, and, and has been, I think, through the book. And of course, just in case any reader missed her connection and parallel to Margot through the book, it's underlining that for us. It's just a very yeah. economical, clever bit of writing. It's amazing. Do we think they would have divorced if Margot had lived? It's just something I'm curious about because three weeks of silent treatment is absolutely horrific. Yeah, I think so. I think that Robin's probably right, Yeah. If Margot hadn't disappeared, I don't know if Roy would have ever felt guilty for not speaking to her. 
Like mm-hmm. at least not in time to make a difference in their marriage. I hope that Margot would have left him because what a shit he is. I mean, I'm talking about them as if they're real people. We do that all the time. I know we do. When Anna says the thing about who would suspect a nurse and Roy and Una both say Margot and then smile at each other. A couple of things. I just get the sense of pride from both of them that Margot was one of the only people who hadn't been fooled by Janice. I certainly feel that for Margot. Mm-hmm. And another thing, I think we're getting another example of amended relationship brought about by examining old pain. And I just, I can't help but wonder about Rokeby here. That's a great catch. You know, it all comes back to those themes of healing and growth that are woven throughout the books, doesn't it? You know, improving your present by dealing with your past. Not to labor a point, but that whole sentence there is brilliant writing. You get the charming connection between Roy and Una. It's it's adorable. You get the pained and detached insecure look away from Cynthia and you get Robin who's noticed it all because she's really excellent at reading human interactions so that's one sentence 26 words stuffed full of information pathos charm character development it's just inspirational stuff so good I wish I could write like that god brilliant I can't even write a tweet we also hear about the letter that Kevin wrote to Anna a bit more of people blaming themselves, but I also think this was a very kind thing to do. I like to imagine Kevin and Anna meeting and it being very healing for both of them. It reminded me of a very much nicer version of Irene's interview. So not public, personal, but still wanting to distance himself from the heinous actions of the murderer. It's completely understandable, of course, but I think Kevin did it better. So they find a couple of things with Margot's body The first was a locket with a picture of Anna. I'm so happy for Anna that she'll get to keep this locket. But there's this little bit about Cynthia, and I hope I'm not being unfair to her. But when Anna is relieved because she knows for a fact that Margot had loved her, Cynthia cuts in and says that they had always told her that. And I don't know, I just get a little sense of what I said should have been enough. And maybe that's a little bit of I should have been enough. I think you're completely right. I think the whole scene's riven with Cynthia's insecurity, which is completely understandable. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's what makes Anna's lovely statement to her a little bit later just so moving, actually. I think it's really so healing. It's gorgeous. The other thing they find with Margot are her notes on Theo. How much do you want to bet that either Strike or Robin Googled her name and tried to find more information? Because I would have done it. Yeah, absolutely. For me, this... This struck a little weird ping in my brain because this is yet another instance of these compound last names showing up on minor characters in the book. So we've got Priestwood, we've got Green Street, we've got Loveridge, and they just, they feel different than the last names that Joe usually picks for characters. I don't know if I'm imagining that or not, but they felt very different to me because we know she puts a lot of thought into names and these three names that have the very similar construction is like, is this a thing I should be paying attention to or am I just losing my mind and grasping at straws? I think that's a put a pin in moment, isn't it? That's a, well, let's pay attention to what happens going forward with those guys. Put that on our list along with Charlotte's, you know, the Ross Campbell thing. Oh yeah, the Ross Campbell thing. Yeah, Yeah. stick it on the list. Yeah, we'll put it on the list. Roy then asks how strong the case against Janice is because they haven't been able to prove Margot was drugged. Strike mentions a case here where they're able to pull DNA from concrete. And I have tried so hard to find this case because I have to imagine it's real. I mean, she references real things all the time, but I couldn't find anything. 
Neither could I. I was looking for one, something that may have come out in 2013 or 2014 that might have fit the criteria that Strike was talking about, but I couldn't find it either. I'm not sure if it's made up or if it's just hidden in the depths of the internet and I'm just not Google savvy enough to find it. But I found some cool cases, but nothing that really meets this. <laughs> it must be real. There's a rabbit trail there for an intrepid investigative fan with a lot of time on their hands. Well, that sounds like me, so I should be able to find it. Okay, how have we gotten to this far and no one has mentioned Strike getting Robin to take over talking so that he can shovel half a slice of cake into his mouth? (laughs) I love him so much. He's like, here, Robin, you talk. I must eat. Strike loves food, but also Robin understanding and facilitating this important relationship. That's the takeaway there. Their marriage is really one of three. There's Strike, there's Robin, there's food. And, you know, it's integrated. This last bit from Anna where she thanks them again and holds Una's hand while looking at Cynthia. She says that Cynthia has been the best mother and that Margot chose the right person to raise her. I think this might be a lot of what's bothering Cynthia. And I do understand it. I'm so glad there was a resolution. I think it's really beautiful. Yeah, it really is. This experience with finding Margot has been painful for them, but also healing. And they more than deserve it after 40 years of not knowing what happened. God, I love that for them. And it's also a beautiful connection with Strike and Joan. When he looks away, he looks at the artwork that's above the fireplace, which is a seascape. And we know that that makes him think of Joan. I've said this before when we talked about that chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap song and how I see a connection between Anna and Strike. And I think that this is yet another thing that they have in common, not just strained relationships with their fathers, but losing their mothers and having a woman who raised them that they both loved. I'm not sure what it all means, but I do love the comparison between Anna and Strike and then Robin and Margot. Robin really used Margot to help her sort through things in her own life. And I don't even think that Strike feels this connection to Anna, maybe, although he certainly did a bit ago, but maybe he'll think back on it when dealing with some Rokeby later stuff. It's just, I'm feeling very, very wistful. And yeah, with this last bit anyway, just like all that lovely full circle sense and those connections is it's just very nice. It's a nice feeling. The rain drummed against the window and the cat in his lap purred, and he remembered the lily urn bobbing away. With a twist in his chest and in spite of his satisfaction at having done what he'd set out to do, he wished he could have called Joan and told her the end of Margot Bamber's story and heard her say she was proud of him one last time. God, what a poignant way to end the chapter. Joe's really good at closing lines like that. Yeah, my heart hurts with that. I don't know if I'm just repeating myself here, but him thinking of Joan after Anna makes this beautiful declaration of what a great mother Cynthia was to her. Just, oh, there's also a lot of rain in this chapter. And I feel like we should definitely talk about this since we've talked so much about water in this book and the healing and renewal of it all. Oh yeah. Important liquids. Oh no. Important liquids making a comeback. We need a mug that says important liquids. Yes. (laughs) The rain here feels like the rain that we got in the apology chapter, like where they're inside and cozy and they're watching the sort of cleansing rain on the window and coming to these moments of change and closure. Because it feels like, so this is the the ending in the closure to Margot's story. And at the same time, it's like a rebirth for her family. So now that they've been brought closer together by this experience, Anna's going to have a place to visit her mother It feels like we're saying goodbye to them and they're starting a new chapter together, right? And that's the sort of healing, the rebirth of being surrounded by this water for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's really beautiful. I love all the water in this book. 
Water, water everywhere. So as we close the chapter, I have another thing for the things I wish we could see category. Okay. I really wish that we could see Strike and Robin go to Margot's funeral together. Yeah. Although not initially for this reason, but I just realized that like Strike would be all in his suit, not in <laughs> looking class. They would look really totally irrelevant, but I just had an image of them looking really great uh-huh. together. So anyway, but mostly because I would love to one, see them there to, to put an end again to this whole case for them and to see the, yeah. the healing that they brought, but also because I really want to see Gloria talk to Anna about what Margot did for her because they guarantee that Gloria would definitely travel to England to attend this funeral right I just want that moment between Gloria and Anna I would also very much like to see that I feel like it could potentially be a little emotional for Robin and maybe yeah I don't know if someone could offer a hand to hold or something oh my god yeah Brilliant. you take my idea and you turn it up to 11 thanks <laughs> No, I take your beautiful idea and turn it back to to these two. No, because yeah, I could go for some some comforting hand holding. We haven't even gotten to seventy three yet. Oh, are you guys ready? I'm not ready for this. The last chapter of the book. I can't believe that we are here. Clara, would you do us the honors of reading the epigraph? Okay, okay. <laughs> right then. For natural affection soon doth cease. And quenched is with Cupid's greater flame. But faithful friendship doth them both suppress, and them with maystring discipline doth tame, though through thoughts aspiring to eternal fame. For as the soul doth rule the earthly mass and all the service of the body frame, so love of soul doth love of body pass, no less than perfect gold surmounts the meanest brass i love that epigraph oh it's really good isn't it Mm -hmm. so romantic it's so romantic i mean it's talking about strike and robin's friendship and how it's deepening into something more a love that goes beyond the physical a love of the soul soulmates yeah it really is it's emphasizing the strength of their friendship as a foundation the way mm-hmm. that friendship is framed as more powerful, more pure, more beautiful than familial affection or erotic love. It's gold to their brass. It's taming them. So their foundation is what transforms the cupid flame between them into that kind of soul love. Their relationship is going to be so good because they're best friends. Yeah. And it's oh. Oh, okay. I need to go have a lie down. A cry down. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. I guess we can start with Thank God Robin finally got some good sleep. Gosh, she deserves it. It's a sign that it's going to be a good day. Yeah. I hope that Strike also slept well because I feel like both of them might not sleep well tonight because I just imagine they're both going to be replaying everything in their heads or feeling a bit keyed up. Oh, (laughs) I definitely thought that you're going somewhere else with that. Uh, Both (laughs) of them might not sleep tonight. I definitely thought that was going to (laughs) someplace totally different. And I was fully on board I was like yes has he changed his sheets that's the question has he changed his sheets? I'm fairly certain that strike is leaving for this date or not date with (laughs) perfectly clean sheets just in case I don't think that's happening but okay well I believe (laughs) that my dissertation on the bingo ball 74 in the Skegness chapter has proven that it is in fact happening okay Okay. One of the things that people talk about is that Pat is the only person from the office not invited to her birthday dinner. 
Do we have any <laughs> thoughts on this? Because I see so many people talk about this. It could be as simple as Pat already had plans and couldn't make it. Or maybe she's just been working so long with Barclay and Hutchins that they're actual proper friends. So she's not inviting them as colleagues. Mm-hmm. She's not inviting work to dinner. She's inviting her buddies, Barclay and Hutchins. I'll be honest, it, it didn't even occur to me. Besides that, though, I wonder how strategic Ilsa was about this when planning a dinner that consists of five couples and <laughs> Cormoran and Robin, right? <laughs> oh, Ilsa, just about as subtle as a hammer to the head. Yeah, yeah. You know that she has them sitting next to each other. Of course she does. Of She's course. got the whole thing planned perfectly. And Strike's not going to resist it. Strike's going to be like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll sit next to Robin. Of We're course, good. he's going to want to. Yeah. He's done trying to fight Ilsa. I think he probably won't let Ilsa know that in my no. opinion, but token grunting, token mm. scowling, but now yeah. he's, he's along for this ride. It says Robin had no plans for today. And I'm like, oh yes, you do. Robin. I love that. It says that strike insisted she take the day off. Cause that to me mm. says that Robin tried to get herself on the schedule for work, yes. but that strike overruled her because he wanted her to have a nice relaxing birthday. And I just think that's very sweet. Does anyone think that Strike is kind of lovingly but intentionally misleading her, you know, with the text to make her think that he forgot again so that it's a surprise in the kitchen and ultimately the whole day? Although I don't know, though, because he can't know when she woke up, could he? Yeah, it's definitely done on purpose, I think, with the intention of it having a bigger impact once she realizes that he hasn't actually forgotten. Yeah, I, I wrote a short story about the whole day from Strike's perspective because this bothered me. So she's woken up late. So by 10 a.m., he's going to be panicking that she's seen the balloon and been completely unimpressed because he would have expected her to message him. I think he's texting because he obviously still has plans in place that he doesn't want to give away. And he's hoping best case scenario is just she hasn't seen the balloon yet. Yeah. And he doesn't want to spoil it if that's the case, which it is. So, yeah, he's definitely being playful as well. So and then she texts mm-hmm. back with that cut. OK, because yeah. like you haven't mentioned my birthday. What? And he's going to be climbing the walls with that thinking, oh, shit. Oh, shit. She, yeah. you know, she didn't like it. It's a bust. And then she finds the balloon, texts him. And he's texting back quick as a flash, probably incredibly relieved. And just, I love, I love the fact that actually his carefully laid plans are as much part of this scene as like Robin's internal reactions to everything as well. God, that's so cute. That makes me think she really tortured him making him wait while she prepared tea and toast, didn't she? (laughs) For the response. Poor Cormoran. <laughs> so she goes upstairs and she finds the large box and card. And the best part about all of this is just her realizing the amount of effort that Strike must have gone through to surprise her like this. Oh, <laughs> I so want to hear about how it all went down. Me too. I love this. He's messed up so badly in the past with thoughtless, low effort gifts. So the fact that he's making such an effort here is really significant. He really wants to draw attention to the fact that he wants to do things differently with her going forward. So he must have gotten Max's number from Ilsa, right? Because I don't think he yeah. had Max's number, which means... That he would have had to fend off Ilsa's questioning about why he wanted to text Max. And then he'd have to go through the awkwardness of phoning or texting Max when he'd only ever met him that time he showed up really drunk and ruined the dinner he was throwing. (laughs) 
<laughs> and also barely remembering him except for oh i kind of like max you know he fed me yeah that is a lot of effort to go to and i approve of it this pool's approved we all know what the card says but we have to read it right happy birthday this isn't your real present you'll get that later not flowers love strike kiss oh <laughs> Yeah, that not flowers kills me. Uh, can we talk about how great all of the inside jokes referenced in Strike's presence to her are? Because they're awesome. Yes, the way he references so many inside jokes as if to say, I see you, I know you. Just making it even more special. Yeah, I'm basically a puddle of goo for this entire yeah, chapter. Right. So I don't think I'm going to be able to contribute anything thoughtful other than... <laughs> we're, we're all puddles of goo, that's okay. Yeah. I feel like there was some sort of mention whenever they're talking about Strike and Charlotte's relationship about how like they shared inside jokes and things that they didn't share with anybody else or something like that. It was like them against the world, Robin replacing Charlotte. Yeah, absolutely. And because you point out something there as well, that those were like us against the world things, whereas this is entirely personal, but it's not to do with them against anyone. This is them having something knitted together that's just private and quiet and cute. It's them sharing their professional lives together too. Because all these jokes come up in the case of them working together and them solving things together. It's them building their lives together. All right. I need to go die now. Like, come on. Come on. How am I going to make it through this chapter when you're saying shit like that? Sorry. It says, Robin looked at this message for far longer than it warranted. Many things about it pleased her, including the kiss and the fact that he'd called himself Strike. I love that she's so giddy over the kiss in the card. I think it warrants a very long look. I don't think she could look at it longer than it warrants. I agree. Right? So she doesn't mention the love bit. Is Mm -hmm. that included in the many things? Possibly. To be fair, I don't know if this is the case for every other English person out there, but love name is a pretty standard birthday card sign off from someone you know reasonably well in my experience anyway yeah so I do it for most of my friends aside from happy birthday it's probably the most generic bit of the card which is kind of ironic for overthinkers anonymous yeah I agree it's it's pretty standard but he could have done from strike he could have just said strike which is what I do yeah but the calling himself strike is my intimacy highlight here because I'm sure we've talked about this before but this is him offering his true self and her delight about it shows that she knows it she knows that's what he's doing and he saw that she started calling him strike when she was teasing him or fond of him or angry so he's now doing it to be like yes please keep doing this i love it in case anyone did miss that in an earlier episode clary you talked about how it's how he sees himself so what you're saying about offering his true self just gets me yeah it's his internal narration is always that's who he sees himself at strike then she opens up the donkey balloon i just i love the grinning to herself as she makes her tea and toast well i know i was grinning as she tortures strike you mean waiting for response i was screaming at this point like i was (laughs) making very high-pitched noises and like walking reading to sort of like burn off my excitement at this i know you talk about torturing him but i feel like maybe she needed those couple of moments to kind of think of what to say right she wanted it to be good yeah you want the perfect flirty response but with plausible deniability like you gotta carefully craft that text and she says thanks for the balloon donkey perfect timing my old one's nearly deflated very good response yeah and now that he knows she's awake and probably very relieved he says 
great. I was worried it was so obvious everyone would have got you one. See you at five. The cheeky little exchange. I love that. Well, the whole thing's an inside joke. So we know each other so well. We are best mates. You know, the history of shit presents, forgetting birthdays, skegness, the demands of their job, having to work at the drop of a hat, the fact that no one else quite understands the world they inhabit. Oh, it's wonderful. I love that. In chapter nine, when it says that Robin has been saving her gifts to open on her actual birthday, she does this again here, but it's a very different day. You know, after she opens her gifts on her 29th birthday, there's a certain sense of feeling disconnected from her family. And here she thinks about how lucky she is. The opal, though, I love this. The last gift her mum gave her was perfume that spoke of the Robin that Linda thought she should be. An opal It's a gem that's formed through water, leaving silica deposits in cracks and voids left by damage and fossils that have disintegrated. And we often hear about diamonds kind of being forged through extreme pressure. And that's obviously very symbolic. And that's often why diamonds are given. But I love that opals, they look quite plain and ordinary. A lot of people think they are just white, just a white stone. But then because of these deposits that have been laid down and kind of fill up the damaged places, the light catches them and they kind of spark rainbows out and they look utterly magical, absolutely beautiful. And that is quite a shift in how her mum sees her. And it is such a powerful metaphor for who Robin is. I love it. Absolutely love it. You're about to make us all cry. Yeah. I love that. And then Robin calls and talks to her mother. I know that Linda's been a source of great debate, but to go along with what you just said, I personally like her. I understand and really empathize with Robin's feelings in the past there. I don't really see that there's a problem going forward though. The part when it says that Linda had disapproved of her career after her first injury, but then how she acknowledges the wonderful thing that they've done here. I really see this as Linda seeing Robin, the true Robin. And by her including Strike's name in that, I think she's supporting all that is coming with it. Yeah, I can't wait to see further interactions between Strike and Robin's family. But let's get on to Robin getting ready. That's the exciting stuff. When it says that she's wearing the same blue dress that she had worn the night she saw Gemma, I'm like, sure, <laughs> that's, that's why we all remember that dress. <laughs> you know, I do wonder if Robin noticed strikes looking away the first time that she wore it and knew that that was you know what that meant did she notice his reaction and wear it deliberately when she realized strike actually wanted to meet up with her on her birthday or was it just a coincidence because he asked her to dress nicely that's a good question because she does notice that with the green dress right she noticed him look away and then she wondered if that's the message he was trying to convey so Hmm. interesting i think that's a really 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 good and i agree yeah really good point Ken's a few episodes back, you talked about the fact that this blue dress was old and wondered whether it was representing her becoming the person she was always meant to be before her attack. I get a bit of that here when she puts the opal on and it says that the beautiful stone lifted the appearance of the old dress and that for once she was pleased with her appearance. It's like she's putting together old and new and she's finally pleased with who she's meant to be. Yeah, that was like actually exactly the part that I was thinking of when I said that. Going off of what Clara was saying earlier, I was doing a little bit of research as far as the symbolic meanings of, you know, opals and everything. And I found some interesting stuff. Aside from being the birthstone for the month of October, opals are considered to amplify traits and bring characteristics to the surface for transformation. It enhances self-worth, confidence, and self-esteem and helps you to understand your full potential. The stone is said to aid in accessing one's true true self 
And Opal has always been associated with love and passion, as well as desire and eroticism. It is a seductive stone that intensifies emotional states and releases inhibitions. It can also act as an emotional stabilizer. Wearing an opal is said to bring about loyalty and faithfulness. I really like the sound of the big chunk of that. Yeah. But also how appropriate for Robin, eh? The bit about, you know, understanding your potential, having self-esteem. She's there. She's become that Robin. And now she's in her power with her opal. And now we can get to the love and passion part. Can I just ask, given that she's, um, she's wearing something old and she's wearing something new, and she's wearing something blue. Oh my goodness. Is this going to be like a spontaneous shotgun wedding? Please. <laughs> Maybe she can borrow Strike's jacket when they get to the registry office to keep warm. Yes. Thank you for that. I love this little note that she installed the donkey balloon in the corner of her room. Yeah. It just really suggests permanence. Yeah. You know that she's never throwing that away. Even when it's yeah. deflated, it's going right in her drawer with her champagne cork. She's keeping that forever. Can I say she is also definitely nabbing the champagne cork from later? Oh, yes. She's Mm -hmm. adding another champagne cork to her collection as well. Guaranteed. She's got it bad. Of course she does. They both do. Okay, should we go on to my favorite subject? Tarot cards? Yes, but unironically in my case. (laughs) Tarot cards. I do love this. How can I not love this? It's a wonderful reading. Okay, so with the three-card spread that Robin does, the three cards that she pulls in order represents the nature of the problem for the first card, and the cause is going to be the second card, and then the solution is the third card. So for the first card, it says she pulls peace, two of swords. It represents a general shaking up, resulting from the conflict of fire and water in their marriage. This comparative calm is emphasized by the celestial attribution, the moon in Libra. For the cause, we have adjustment. This card represents the sign of Libra. She represents the woman satisfied. Equilibrium stands apart from any individual prejudices. She is therefore to be understood as assessing the virtue of every act and demanding exact and precise satisfaction. And then for the last one, we have the love card, which is the two of cups. The card also refers to Venus and Cancer. It shows the harmony of the male and the female interpreted in the largest sense it is perfect and placid harmony such a perfect reading again i'm still a newbie to tarot i'm not great at it yet but if i was reading the spread for robin i would say that her problem is that she's peaceful because it means that she's standing still so she's happy with where she is but she's becoming complacent and she's not moving forward to find something that could be even better And that the nature of her problem is that she's overthinking. She's worrying about Charlotte. She's rationalizing her own feelings and strikes feelings. She's spending so much time assessing the virtue of every act and demanding precise satisfaction that she's stalling and failing to move forward. So she's peaceful, but is that peace enough? Obviously not, because the solution is that she needs to embrace her soulmate, the Two of Cups, which again, soulmate card. And if I was doing this with my cards with the Rider Waite, The Two of Swords is a bit different for me in the Rider Waite cards. I would say the problem is that she has a choice to make, but she's closing her own eyes to the options that are right in front of her and that she can free herself from where she's trapped if she opens her eyes and actually looks at the things she has available to her. Things meaning a certain grizzly bear of a man right there in front of her. Justice, the cause of the problem, is another card about choices 
And I'd say again that it shows she's being too careful and logical and assessing all of the pros and cons and that she needs to go with her heart rather than her head because it comes in between the swords, uh, which are the intellectual suit and the cups, which are the heart suit. It's saying, no, the problem is you're thinking too much about this. You got to go with what's in here. You can't see it, but I'm pointing towards my heart. And that's where the solution points again. L-O-V-E, love. So my assessment as an amateur tarot reader are that the cards have spoken and they have said that she needs to climb strike like she's a cat climbing up a Christmas tree. And that's facts. So eloquent. I, I mean, I completely agree on all counts, obviously. I went into it in mind-boggling depth, to be honest. My head was frazzled in the deep dive I did on Troubled Blood. And it was great fun. And actually, when you look at the task cards, the pictures, the actual illustrations are quite exciting with respect to certain aspects of Strike's viewpoint on Robin, particularly the, the snake particularly excited me, actually, in that one. Interesting. The snake he wanted to keep? Yeah. Yeah, because actually, if you look at the card that I think represents him that she drew, it's the man in the card is looking at a cup out of which comes a snake. And in the Toth card here, that's supposed to represent Robin and that she sees as representing Robin, she's wearing a headdress that's got a snake on it. So it's just very exciting. Mind blown. Wow. And this might be absolutely nothing and ridiculous because I know nothing about this. But when the second card talks about the woman satisfied, Robin just raises her eyebrows and it's always kind of stood out to me. Hmm. So what, like, why do we think she's raising her eyebrows? Yeah. Like the fact that the card represents Libra and is listed there very clearly Robin. Maybe she's raising her eyebrows that the card's just calling her out. I think it's a subtle Dublon Tronde, actually. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's funny because we explicitly hear from Robin in this book that she hasn't been the woman satisfied for way too long. Exactly. Yeah. Hopefully that'll change soon. And she and Strike coincidentally have both been not satisfied for literally the exact same length of time. Oh, the stars are aligning. Yeah. She follows it with the last card and then she takes a deep breath. I love this bit. She takes a deep breath before putting the cards away and the donkey balloon sways as she picks up the coat so the whole section is like strike she's so crazy about strike i just want to underline this for you in case you missed it you know like anybody would but yeah but that deep breath it's a preparation as much as getting dressed picking up the coat and even doing the reading she's saying okay here we go i'm into it (laughs) i'm super into it Robin could feel the new opal resting in the hollow of the base of her throat as she walked toward the tube station along the road. And having slept properly for once and having clean hair and carrying a feeling of lightness with her that had persisted ever since she took the balloon donkey out of his box, she attracted many pairs of male eyes in the street and on the train. But Robin ignored all of them, heading up the stairs at Oxford Circus and then proceeded down Regent Street and finally to the Shakespeare's head where she saw Strike standing outside wearing a suit. Mm, Perfect. A feeling of lightness since getting the balloon, ignoring all eyes, walking straight for Strike. Strike in a suit. He's only got eyes for her main man. Yeah. When he tells her happy birthday and kisses her cheek, Robin can smell the lavender, which she notes is unusual. I just want to note that in chapter, I think 13, when they're walking around Clark and well, Strike thinks that he only wears that for special occasions. So just 
pointing out that he considers this day a special occasion. And it's so cute. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Would now be a great time to mention just how great Strikes Cologne smells because it really is heavenly. It's always a good time to mention that. Yeah. I love how Strike hesitates before he kisses her cheek because unlike someone else I could mention, Morris, that shit, who felt totally entitled, Strike is actually thinking about whether a cheek kiss is appropriate and welcome. And also, you know, whether it's a good idea, which is his own internal. Clearly, he's decided that it is on all three, and he's 100% correct. I just like that we get that moment of thought. So Robin saying, thanks, aren't we going into the pub, has also been something I've seen discussed a lot. What's the consensus here? That she never believed this was a work thing? For me personally, the jig was up as soon as I read that first sex exchange, but I genuinely think that Robin still hasn't quite caught on. Yeah, I think assuming they were going for a drink at the very least would be what she was expecting. Yeah. But she wouldn't have been expecting the perfume or the Ritz. But then who was? Yeah, not me. Yeah, I think she might have had her suspicions after that balloon that this was a birthday surprise and that the text was a feint. But mm-hmm. yeah, she probably thinks drinks at the pub is about what she can expect from a strike surprise. She's so wrong. She doesn't even know. <laughs> I think I about died when I first read him say that he wanted to buy her perfume the thing that he couldn't bring himself to do at Christmas because it was too personal because the names were too sexy he's fully embracing oh he really is isn't he he's returned to the scene of his Christmas crime and he's (laughs) going to make amends it is still such an intimate present I still I still maintain this it's such an intimate gift super is he hopes that she hasn't already got perfume because he couldn't think of anything else to offer her that didn't take them back into the realm of awkwardness and possible misunderstanding. Mm. What's everyone's take on this possible misunderstanding because he wants to be clear? Oh, yeah. Initially, I did think this was the strongest evidence of not a date because I read it as... <laughs> He doesn't want to accidentally embarrass himself by suggesting smoochable options and thus make a play that falls flat. That was how I initially read it. But actually, I think a plausible alternate reading is, I know exactly what I want to say and do this evening. This is about taking a step forward. And I don't want to have to think of another gift that does that because I might end up stalling the progress that I want to make. So... I think there is textual evidence placing this on a knife edge between the controversial date slash not a date that is too close to call until book six drops. Such a perfect summation of the two different readings. I choose to believe in the second reading that the Mm -hmm. misunderstanding is flipped. He wants her to understand that he cares about her and he wants her to understand just how much he cares, right? Before he was afraid of revealing his feelings with the too good gift because he was on the like the it's not happening train right so now he's on he's on a different train he's on the train to the clean sheet station it's hard because we don't get a lot of his thoughts towards the end of the book and and that's for obvious reasons because she has to torture us a little bit right but I do read it the same way I think that he wants to be intentional and he wants to begin pursuing her and he wants to let her know that he's open to this And I also think that the next bit also suggests that when he tells her about Christmas and that he had panicked because the names were too suggestive, 
Shaggable you. Shaggable you. I just feel like he's kind of addressing the elephant in the room a little bit and not mm-hmm. too much, not outright, but enough to let her know that these things are on his mind. Yeah, I agree. He's definitely testing the waters here, but I know Clara, you have some excellent thoughts on this. Thank you. This for me, this is, I'm going to mention sex in a humorous and safe context because I want to see your reaction. I want you to know it's in the ether between us at the very least. I don't want to embarrass you. I want to self-deprecate a little and underline that I am not going to disrespect you or overstep. So it's very, very charming flirting. Super charming. Super charming. I love that you say flirting because I very much want a deliberately flirty strike in book six as he's trying to push this forward because I mean, mostly because I want to see Robin absolutely losing her mind over whether or not he's actually flirting, because I think it'll be hilarious. But uh... when Robin laughs out loud from the whole shaggable you thing and people turn to look at her, it reminds me of when they're sitting at the bar Italia and she makes him laugh and a man turns to look at him. The comfort level they have with each other is adorable. So to feel so safe with someone that you laugh loudly enough for others to notice is Hmm. chef's kiss it's gorgeous and also let's appreciate this is why he did it he likes to make her laugh he's just so in love it's killing me so in love by the way side (laughs) note to all men you choose whatever you want and i'll pay genius move (laughs) yeah yes very nice you mentioned this a little bit later but i think it's really important that you know given that perfumes represent sort of represent identity in this book. It's really important that she's making a decision here about who she wants to be going forward with Strike's help. Yeah, the the symbolism around gifts is really powerful in the book anyway, but I'm also reminded of you find the surveillance course and I'll pay for it. It's like I'm connected to your your development in a positive way, in a facilitating way, but you're in charge of it. Of course, that was just the BBC series. It was, but I think, as I say many times, they captured that character. That's distilling yeah. the character. That's what you do in an adaptation. It's successful, which I think we can agree they've been successful. Yeah. That's distilling that, that character. Strike, said Robin. This is, this is thoughtful. Yeah, well, said her partner with a shrug. People can change. Oh. Acknowledging that he hasn't always been thoughtful and that he's making the effort. And I like that he says he's going to stand over here. You take your time. He doesn't want to get in the way. Because <laughs> yeah. you get that sort of bull in the china shop, except it's bare in the perfume aisle. <laughs> <laughs> and it says, now she hesitated, wondering whether she dared do what she wanted. But surely, if they were best friends, it was all right. I'm like, sure, that's why, Robin. Not that you want his opinion on how you smell and that you want him to like how you smell. That's why. I'm hoping that she continues the, this is definitely what best friends do as an excuse to do soulmate shit in book six. Yeah. I think there's the potential for some seriously hilarious internal monologues from Robin come book six. Yeah. That's really what I'm holding out for there. It's actually really funny that she's asking him how he wants her to smell basically, because when he's shopping at Christmas, it (laughs) said- He was looking for something like flowers, but not flowers. Something that said, I like you, but not, this is what I'd like you to smell like. (laughs) Uh, 
Oh, so perfect. This has just come to me now, but I like the comparison of this with her experience shopping for perfume previously when it was so stressful. She was smelling too many things and the assistants were just throwing stuff at her. And then she saw Sarah Shadlock's perfume. But here the assistant is helpful and she has a pleasurable quarter of an hour and she's actually enjoying the experience of shopping for perfume and strikes there with her. One of my favorite things about this though, and we have to talk about the fact that she Mm -hmm. presented him with literal vanilla and then something that reminds him of warm, musky skin and without hesitation, he does not want vanilla. I think the implication here is very clear. Vanilla is their platonic relationship. He likes it. It's comforting, but it's not what he wants with her. No, he wants the sexy musky skin. Bingo. Absolutely. Like, yes, he needs the vanilla to live, but he's going to go for a little bit more. Mm. Mm -hmm. Perfection. Such a clear metaphor. It's like smack you in the face with it metaphor. So side note. I know tester strips are great and all, but I am kind of sorry that they don't test directly on the arm now because strike smelling both her wrists slowly and thoughtfully would probably have been the death of me. Jesus Christ, are you literally trying to kill me? Because if so, it's worked. Put it on my tombstone, yep. But the fact that he so quickly does not choose vanilla makes the next bit even better when she grins while smelling it again and says, yes, I think I prefer to as well. There's also the bit where she says, I thought you'd prefer the first as if she's saying, I'm glad you don't prefer the first. I've been worried you prefer the first. Oh my God. So basically you're saying that this choice between the two perfumes is basically a coded conversation about what they both want out of their relationship. Cause that's blowing my mind. That's absolutely exactly what I'm saying. She gives him the options and she's pleased that he doesn't want vanilla because she doesn't want it either. It's like, she's basically asking what kind of relationship he wants with her. And she's very pleased with his answer. Mm-hmm. I love it. <sighs> so she gets Narciso. Yeah. Narciso. Yeah. It's said differently in the audiobook, So I'm, well, not... they pronounced it Isla in the audio. I know. Too. I'm just still not quite <laughs> sure, but I mean, I literally am. I'm wearing it now. I have it Me right too. Nice club. <laughs> I love that there's a group of obsessed women across the globe who all just smell like Narciso now. Like, do you think that the perfume company saw a spike in sales? Who yeah. <laughs> this came out and were like, what's I mean, going I do on? remember it being sold out. So yeah. Yeah, it was. It was hard to find the rolling effect. Can we talk a little bit about how perfume in this book, how it's been used to represent identity and what it means that Robin has now found hers with Strike's help? It's definitely significant that Strike is, you know, helping her with that. But I think it's also significant that he's giving her the agency to sort of make this decision on her own. Like Robin still wants his input, but at the end of the day, he kind of leaves that decision about which one she should get up to her. It's that teamwork, but not codependency element. He's constantly checking in that this is an appropriate gift, that she doesn't already have something else she chose without him. And she's reciprocating by asking his opinion. And not just going with her assumptions about what he might like. And also the thinking that his opinion on what she smelled like was significant enough to ask for it. So there's just a beautiful mutuality to the whole exchange, sort of respectful dance of power balance that shows how much they matter to each other. And obviously he's got his cologne on. So in terms of symbolism, he's definitely presenting his best self there. 
and his best self is honest, self-deprecating, respectful, funny, generous, and completely in love. Did I mention that already? In chapter 30, when Robin is thinking about why her mother chose the perfume that she did for Robin, she thinks back on why she bought the fracas earlier in the book. And she said that she, it was because she wanted to be sexy and sophisticated. And then she thinks about the disparity between the way people would like to be seen and the way others prefer to see them. There's something there about Robin wanting to be seen as sexy, but others not wanting to see her that way. Or so she thinks, but here she's getting both of those things. She's getting to feel sexy and be seen as sexy by the person she most wants to be seen by. I love that the sexiness of Narciso as written comes from the musky skin. It's like a more intimate, quiet, more natural sexiness rather than the flamboyant, big smell of fracas. And that's like her sexiness is she's embodying it now fully. And it's in her skin, if that makes sense. There's got to be some kind of link to the green dress there as well, given how she thinks about the green dress and how she is kind of coming to terms with the fact that she wants Strike to see her as an attractive, sexy woman. So I'm thinking, especially as the green dress is no more, as far as we know. I really want the first thing she buys with that 10 grand from Matthew had better be a top-notch tailor to repair that green dress. That's a poetic use of that divorce money, I feel like. But I wonder if like now she's got the blue dress on, but I wonder if there's some symbolism going along there that's similar to the, the perfume choices. Two different dresses. The green dress is more formal. She just have a dress for every sexy occasion. I do think the green dress will be back. I hope so. I hope so. She has to get married in it. Sorry, that's just me. I know people disagree with me, but come on. I think it too. Okay, thank you. We then get Strike feeling that she's owed a bit of ceremony by getting it gift wrapped, even though he doesn't quite understand it. It kind of <laughs> reminds me of the whole scarf thing in Skegness. Yeah. He doesn't quite understand the need, but he understands that she does and he goes with it. And then you get that little gem of the line. Her smile as she took the bag told him that he had answered correctly. Yeah, oh, so cute. So cute. Is this a good place to talk about love languages? Because mm. I know that you, Pools, have had some thoughts about this. Some thoughts that have been killing me for over a year now. So I'd very much like you to share them to murder yes, some more, please. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about the love languages of Cormoran and Robin. So Cormoran, I know this is going to be controversial. I'm going to say it anyways. I genuinely think that Cormoran's love language is gift giving. Okay, we've seen him give ridiculous extravagant presents to both Robin and Charlotte before like the bracelet that he gave to Charlotte he had to take out a loan to buy that bracelet while he was already deep in debt that's ridiculous the green dress the green dress in particular shows that that's how he expresses his gratitude and his feelings he buys something super appropriate and beautiful and extravagant so now we get to trouble blood so if Carmen's love language is gift giving One might ask why he spends the entire novel complaining about having to buy people gifts, right? Why does he do such a shit job at gifts for Robin? Because Carmen in love, the thing is, he doesn't like feeling obligated or trapped into love. So having to express love on someone else's timeline instead of a spontaneous expression for him is like, no way. He's going to be dragged kicking and screaming into obligatory gift slash love because he has such strong associations with it, right? So he saves up a bunch of badges to bring to Jack at the beginning of the novel 
but he hates the idea of having to buy shit for his other nephews that he doesn't even <laughs> that he thinks are shits right <laughs> so he gets robin terrible gifts or no gifts because he's afraid that a gift will show how much he loves her because it will because it's his language so he's commenting too far in the other direction and she's here thinking he doesn't care at all then you get to robin and i think this is a less controversial take that robin's love language is words of affirmation like remember that time we saw her blossom like a water lily at praise from, from striking cuckoo's calling She's craving verbal validation and affection. She wants Strike to tell her what she means to him, right? To tell her that he values her. But she gives great gifts to Carmen because she's generally a considerate and thoughtful person. And because maybe something's picking up that, yes, his love language is gifts. And notice that, notice how touched he always is when she gets him good gifts too. That's another signal to his love language, how grateful he is. So she's starving from words of affirmation and affection. And also she's getting shitty gifts from him. But by the end of the novel, Cormoran has finally learned that one, words of affirmation can be gifts as well. He realized that he said all the things to Joan about how he feels. That was a gift to Joan about how he loved her. And he's like, why didn't I say this to her before? So he tells Robin flat out that she's his best friend, which she literally compares to the gift of an engagement ring, by the way. So he's finally starting to give Robin what she needs. And by the end of the book, their languages are totally synced up and he's letting himself express his feelings through these gifts and is clearly amazing at it at the same time as he's opening up with the words that Robin needs from him. And I just, oh, it's just such a great journey. And I love all the gifts in this book. And I've always really loved that. And it makes so much sense. And I'm just swooning still over here. Yet again. And now I'm thinking of Lita's extravagant gifts when he was a kid and then contrasted with not taking care of his basic needs and never getting a card from his father on his birthday or Christmas. And I'm losing my mind. I have to go lie down. The whole scene, though, is just so romantic as they leave mm-hmm. together the flowers are surrounding him, and that's when he tells her that he's taking her to the ritz which hello call back to another very romantic chapter for a moment robin simply looked at him then she reached up and hugged him tightly surrounded by banked flowers both remembering the hug they'd shared at the top of the stairs on her wedding day but this time Robin turned her face and kissed Strike deliberately on the cheek, lips to stubble. Thanks, Strike. This really means a lot. And that, thought her partner, as the two of them headed away towards the Ritz in the golden glow of the early evening, really was well worth 60 quid and a bit of an effort. It means a lot to her and that was worth everything. I have to go cry. A hug, you say, at the top of some stairs on Robin's wedding day. Why, I don't think I've noticed either of them give that any consideration before. Three years at this point, they've been thinking about this hug, haven't they? Yes. My God. Also, did anyone else have a heart attack the first time they were reading this at the kissed strike bit before they managed to get onto the on the cheek? Or was that just me? (laughs) I was like, kissed oh it's on the cheek god damn it <laughs> the way they do it in the audiobook is super evil because it's like kissed strike pregnant pause deliberately <laughs> on the cheek they know what they're doing god exactly. damn it lips to stubble <sighs> and so as we end this amazing novel out of his subconscious rose the names mazenkov and krupov and it was a second or two before he remembered where he'd heard them 
why they sounded Cornish and why he thought of them now. The corners of his mouth twitched, but as Robin didn't see him smiling, he felt no compulsion to explain. So what does this mean? Let's unpack this. Talking about coming full circle in the ring structure, this is a reference to Polworth and his story in the beginning of the book about why he asked Penny to marry him, mm-hmm. which is incredibly significant for Strike to be thinking of it now. Yeah. Quick side note, it makes me laugh because it says that since Robin didn't see him smile, he felt no compulsion. Would he have explained like, oh, I'm just thinking about marrying you. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it definitely makes me laugh because because actually I think he might have been tempted. I don't think he would have done, but I think he would have felt a mischievous tug to maybe make a joke about it and would have reined himself back in from doing it because he's completely buoyant at this point and rightly so. Right, so he does have that tendency to be mischievous, doesn't he? It's been mentioned a couple times in the books. Yeah, I know that there's been some debate about whether or not this is referencing marriage or just a committed relationship. I'm going to stick to my argument that it does mean marriage because it's literally what Polworth was talking about. Had J.K. Rowling intended it to mean just a committed relationship, she would have had Polworth tell that story. I also think that Strike still believes that Robin is the type for marriage. So I think accepting that he wants a relationship with Robin is indicating that he's okay with that possibility down the line. It's definitely about marriage. This is his breakthrough in the book. This is his complete character arc from first chapter to last chapter. So I'm going to go out on a limb and basically say that I think every confident pronouncement and deflection he made in that first chapter has been at the very least cast into doubt if not completely resolved in his mind by this last paragraph so can we have book six now please thank you (laughs) i too absolutely think strikes remembering this conversation specifically because his opinion on marriage has changed over the course of troubled blood so when he's thinking about marriage and permanence in the opening half of the book He's thinking about it as a burden, right? A responsibility, an obligation, something that's going to drag him down. So he's skeptical of Polworth's story, not just because of how insanely disrespectful to Penny it is, but because he can't conceive of marriage as something that frees him from carrying a burden. But over the course of the book, Strike is coming to realize that complete independence uh, actually kind of sucks and that he might like to have someone to rely on sometimes. He's constantly calling Robin at these moments of stress or sadness because he finds her voice soothing. And in doing this, he's unconsciously, consciously seeking the kind of comfort that a partner, that marriage, that commitment can offer. And then at the turning point of their dinner fight, it becomes clear to him that he's been making Robin unhappy, that he hasn't been providing this to her, this kind of comfort and support. And so that big realization The growth he's going through is that he wants to make Robin happy. He wants her to come to him when she has big news or problems. He wants to put the effort in because making Robin happy brings him joy too. So the work he's done by the end of the book is the realization that making Robin happy, being her partner, isn't actually a burden or an obligation or an annoyance. It's something that's reciprocal and which brings him happiness in and of itself. So now he's thinking back to his conversation with Polworth and he's like, maybe there is actually something in this. It's not the gross point that Polworth was making, but it's a different one. It's that a real permanent partnership, romantic relationship can actually ease his burdens rather than adding to them. 
So it's not out of the realm of possibility that permanence or, or marriage with Robin can make him happy. And the specific names, the Mazenkov and Krupov, I think stuck with him because he's worried about ruining his career, ruining the agency with a relationship. But then he's smiling because he's realizing that turning into the marrying kind for and with Robin, making it permanent, isn't going to ruin his career. It's going to do the exact opposite. It's going to cement it in a way that it's been heading towards all along. He already is realizing that, oh shit, breaking this up would be like a divorce. Why not dive in? Face first, eyes open, can't lose. That's how I feel about the ending of this book. And I love it Mm -hmm. so much. Mm -hmm. Two things actually just suddenly jumped into my head. One is wondering where he's going to be at his 80th birthday, was it? I think. And also Ted and Joan. Those are two crucial parts of this little journey he's made throughout the book. What am I going to be doing then? Who am I going to be with? We know. We know, we do. Yeah, we do. And the Mazenkov and Krupov reference is definitely Mm -hmm. about ease. And it specifically arises from his thoughts about how much more straightforward this was than he feared. So perhaps Mm -hmm. it's actually surprised him how much he enjoyed setting it up. Recall the painful lengths, you've already referenced this, that he went to for the bracelet he got for Charlotte, taking on debt because of it. But here he is with Robin and he gets to enjoy the fruits of his little bit of effort which I actually think he didn't quite expect as well. I think the fact that he, yeah. he's not yeah. realised how much he was going to enjoy that. And this is just a random thing, really, that I, I love the reference to the names Mazenkoff and Krupov sounding Cornish, given that, yes, some Cornish names do have that distinctive C sound, but more specifically, because he remembers the proud Cornishman from <laughs> Birmingham, Polworth, saying them just to <laughs> underline that this is the conversation he's thinking of so yeah so yeah. many layers lovely also i've just realized that he opens this book celebrating Polworth's birthday and closes it celebrating robin's birthday more parallels and it's all reflecting i know that a lot of people myself included were hoping for a kiss or some sort of declaration for troubled blood but mm. i can't even begin to describe how much i love this ending it's perfection. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I would change a single thing about it. I love it so much. Yeah, it's beautiful. And since this is the end of the book, I mean, do we have any final thoughts on the book in general? I mean, this is definitely my favorite of the series so far, and not just because of how adorable these two are, although that's mm-hmm. a big part of it, and the progress that they make in their relationship, but because of how much I love a cold case being solved, and because I think we get the most interesting villain so far. What do you guys think? It's my favorite too. You know, I thought that nothing could top my love of Lethal White before Troubled Blood came out, but Troubled Blood really blew it out of the water. The character development, the relationship development, the clever ways the clues are kind of littered throughout the plot and all the parallels. I mean, there were parts on my first read that dragged a little bit because it just felt like kind of interview after interview, but covering the book for the podcast has really given me a deeper appreciation of all the non-relationship stuff. Yeah, you're going to be shocked to hear that (laughs) it's my favorite as well. <laughs> I adore Margot and I love that yeah. the the way we get the insight into who she was and the way she affected the people in her life and the way that Robin's life is so poignantly paralleled with hers I think just really makes the book for me. And then you get to the personal stuff. I love the amount of personal growth obviously Robin and Strike's journey. I also really like that we get Pat in this book. She's one of yeah. my favorite parts. And then again, the themes of the book towards the way it treats misogyny and violence towards women are obviously right up my alley. And then on top of that, it's ridiculously shippy and a million pages long. So that means I really actually get to sink my teeth into it. I don't know how book six is going to top it. 
I honestly don't. I don't see how it can. But yeah, I love Trouble Blood. It's a brilliant layered book that rewards with each reread. And that is not something you can say of all books. I love that it stands alone. You don't have to have read the others. But if you have, then the payoffs are so sweet. I laughed. I cried. I made an awful lot of exciting squeaking noises. And (laughs) as long as it is, as I read those last paragraphs, I had that bittersweet feeling of wanting to rush to see exactly what happens, but slow down. So I didn't reach that last line too quickly. Rowling's writing astonishes me. I have friends who don't enjoy it, but I think she's so skillful at her craft. And in Trouble Blood, she's given us Strike and Ellicott truly as a partnership between two rounded and real characters whom we love and are also frustrated with. That's why we want book six, why we want to follow them out of liberties and why most of us are 10 books. Yes, please. Thank you. And I've said many times in many places, these aren't detective genre novels. They are novels about the human condition. Every part of it, love, hate, life, death, pain and joy. And Rowling just used the detective genre as a backdrop. And I love it. What a wonderful way to end the episode and the book, really. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah. And thank you so much for coming on for this very special one. We were really glad that you could make it. It's been a joy. Thank you so much for having me as ever. Well, that'll be it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. This will be our last episode covering Troubled Blood, but don't worry. We'll have two more episodes coming out during the holiday season, one with our book six predictions and another with bloopers that didn't make the final cut of the published episodes all in our usual release schedule. We'll return in January for our reread of Cuckoo's Calling. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always email us at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.